Well, it's so good to see all of you here this morning after uh, Thanksgiving holiday. If you're joining us online this morning, well, we're grateful that you've tuned in to worship with us as well. Hopefully, the tryptophan effect is all through your system and uh, you're wide awake and ready to dig into the word, right? Uh, thank you. Thank you. One. Tom is, is a shortened, an abbreviated version of Thomas. That's my given name, Thomas. It is a name that we find in Scripture. It, it was the name of one of the disciples. Thomas is the Aramaic name. He is also called Didymus in Scripture. That's the Greek version. Thomas, also called Didymus, both mean the same thing. They mean twin. I am not a twin. I was named after my father, and, uh, and again, in, in our English um, uh, American vernacular, you know, we don't consider maybe the meaning of the name as much as we just like a particular name. But it does make me wonder, did Thomas in the scriptures have a twin brother or a twin sister? And if so, what happened to them? What, what was their spiritual journey like? Maybe we'll find out someday. Uh, I find it difficult to believe that Thomas would have been named twin if he didn't have a twin. And, and then what do you name the, the other twin? <laughs> it's worthy to contemplate anyway. I like this American proverb. Be thankful if your life is a little harder than you like. A knife can't be sharpened on a piece of velvet. We've just celebrated that uniquely American holiday known as Thanksgiving. And what we know of that group of pilgrim believers who created the precedent for this wonderful season certainly didn't find life on the eastern seaboard a piece of velvet. I marvel every time I read the facts concerning their journey. So let me ask you this morning. How long could you survive in a space the size of a volleyball court? Oh, could you make it 66 days without leaving that volleyball court? Oh, and could you make it if you were exposed to the elements between the months of September and November? And oh, could you also share that same space with 102 other people for those 66 days? Thus was the journey on the Mayflower. As you can imagine, it was a disease-ridden journey. It was a tumultuous journey. There was one death and one birth among the pilgrims. And so 102 left and 102 landed in Massachusetts, or what would later be the state of Massachusetts during that frightfully cold November of 1620. Out of that 102 that landed, 53 survived to celebrate that first harvest in the new land. And out of that group of 53, only four were women. Nearly 50 graves dotted the hillside as a reminder of their tragic loss. So, so the question comes to my mind, why did the 53 that survived the winter remain? Why didn't they get back on the Mayflower and return to England that following spring, leaving behind what they may have considered to be a failed experiment? Well, they didn't consider it a failed experiment. Those who died did not do so in vain. Why did they stay? They stayed because they came here with a spirit of expectation that this new and uncharted territory would help them honor God and worship God. The pilgrims' remarkable faith set a great tone for what would become our nation. 
And after that first harvest, they prayed and they parted because they had a whole lot to celebrate. The land was abundant, and best of all, they had found freedom to worship God. They had their spiritual liberty. That first Thanksgiving was a three-day celebration of that harvest in the early autumn of 1621. And while they reflected on their difficulties, they spent far more time rejoicing in their blessings. I think that's a pretty good pattern for us to follow today. Yes, you can share your disappointments and disheartening moments, but spend more time rejoicing in the blessings that God has given you. Life wasn't a piece of velvet then. Life isn't a piece of velvet now. I'm not sure that life ever has been a piece of velvet ever since sin entered this world. But we have a hope that sustains us regardless of the circumstances because Christians live with expectation. Have you noticed throughout biblical history how God planted the seed of an expectant hope over and over again in the hearts of his people? In the dismal tragic aftermath of Adam and Eve's sin, they lost that intimate relationship with God. They lost the cooperative power of nature around them and they lost their home in that beautiful lush garden. They learned the hard way that all that glitters is not good. Sometimes the enticing tempter is nothing but a snake in the grass. But even amid the consequences of their moral failure, God spoke expectant hope into their lives. And to catch that hope, they had to listen close to what God was saying because God didn't speak the expectant hope to them. God spoke it to the enemy, the tempter, Satan himself. Listen to these words. God's having a conversation now with the tempter. And if Adam and Eve listened closely, they would hear the first hope of the expected one. Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The name Eve means to live or breathe, a giver of life, and she certainly had more than one child, but the promise here is singular. Did you notice? There is coming one of your descendants who will once and for all crush the power of the enemy, Satan himself. Now that is expectant hope. Just a little bit later in Genesis, we find the Lord distressed over the human condition. The Bible describes it like this in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on earth had become, that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Isn't that pathetic to think of what humanity had become? Now me, at that point I would have just given up and concluded that it doesn't work spending time with sinful humanity. Uh, it, it wasn't worth the effort. It wasn't worth the pain. But God never did give up on us. God knew that the world needed a reboot and he chose Noah and his family because the Bible says that Noah was righteous, blameless, and walked with the Lord. The ark, you see, was all about a new beginning, an expectant hope. Our new sermon series, Above All Names, begins today. And in the weeks leading up to Christmas, we'll explore the Eternal names of Jesus is spelled out in that familiar passage that you've already heard read this morning from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. But hear it 
again. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, that's not the entire passage. That's the passage that we cling to, especially at this season of the year. But this morning, we want to begin with an overarching look at the power of hope in the expected one. You see, this passage in Isaiah actually opens in verse 2 with these words. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Darkness, shadow. I don't know about you, but today feels like shadowy times. The political polarization in our nation is palpable. Moral darkness surrounds us. Two weeks ago, we talked about the very fact that at this point in, in the year, there are over 300 violent, brutal mass shootings, over 300. Folks, that doesn't count the daily homicides, the single homicides. They hardly even make the news anymore. And when they do, we, we become so uh, accustomed to the disheartening news that we hardly pay attention. The opioid crisis is not just outside these walls. It's inside these walls, and it's affecting families that we love and care for. Our country, our communities, our families need our prayers. We're going to talk more about all this in the future. And we mask our fears and our dismay by saying, well, at least it didn't happen to me or at least it didn't happen to my family because we have no other way of dealing with some of these darkness, shadowy issues in our midst. As of yesterday, I don't know what it is this morning, but as of yesterday, the wildfires in California have resulted in at least 87 deaths and there are still nearly 500 missing these are dark times. These are tough times. And during the shadow moments of life, the light of hope is so desperately needed. Yes. Now, I know people often complain about the busyness of the holiday season. I, I know we can get all out of sorts because we get pulled in dozens of different directions. Or maybe for some of you here this morning, it's just the opposite. You have no one close with whom to share the season, and so all the celebrations... And all the decorations simply accentuate your loneliness. But have you ever stopped to think what life would be like if we had nothing to celebrate at this season or any season? What, what would our lives be like if the pilgrims had come as cutthroat adventurers instead of God seekers? What if God had decided not to intervene into human history or that following the great flood he just walked away and left us alone to destroy one another? Or what if Jesus had never come from heaven? We'd have no bread of life, no living water, no good shepherd, no light of the world. What if no one ever came from heaven to show us the way home? I can't imagine. I can't begin to imagine how empty this existence would seem. How pointless our lives would be. To conclude that there is no God, that my life or anybody's life is meaningless, that I'm just the product of dumb luck or random chance, that my actions and my deeds are of little consequence, if there's no purpose in living, if there's no meaning in dying, then what would stop me from committing some heinous crime? If I didn't believe there was a God, if I didn't believe there were consequences, if I didn't believe in anything like that, what would stop me? What would stop you from committing some heinous crime? Could it be that the reason we see all these mass shootings 
and homicides out of the roof and all the crisis that involved with drugs and other issues in our world is because we have lost hope in the expected one and that we believe that nothing beyond the moment really matters. These are shadowy times. But listen to that glorious verse again. The people walking in darkness, oh, they've seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Now, the word hope does not enter into that verse, but every phrase, every word just oozes hope. You see, shadows, folks, shadow, look at this verse. Shadows darken our paths and obscure our vision, but shadows cannot harm us. For the believer, even death is but a shadow. What's more, you have to have a light to have a shadow. You don't see shadows in darkness. They're not there. It takes a light to have a shadow. And I believe that the light of the world himself casts the shadows behind us, not in front of us. I think that's what Isaiah is pointing us to. And it's his focus that God keeps pointing the reader to this expectant hope. It's going to get better. You follow the light in the darkness of your moments, in the shadows of your life. You keep walking toward the light of the world. Now, regardless of your cultural background, your generation, your social standing, your education, your gender, or your career path, do you realize this morning that hope is vital to your existence, that you will not survive without hope? Dr. Walter Campbell wrote this. He said, it is highly contagious. It banishes gloom and discouragement. Everybody needs it. Wicked men try to kill it. Wise men never hoard it. It can't be bought, not at any price, yet it is worth the whole world. The answer, in a word, is hope. As we enter this Advent season, we are reminded of the eternal hope that comes through the expected one. In the 18th century, great preacher and hymn writer uh, Charles Wesley was studying this verse from the prophet Haggai in chapter 2, verse 7. This is what the verse reads. It says, I will shake all the nations... And the desired of all nations will come. That phrase, the desired of all nations will come, is a reference to the coming of the Savior. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. Inspired by those words from the prophet, he wrote the song that we sang at the very beginning of the worship service. The words go like this. Come thou long expected, Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. But folks, if hope for you is nothing but a wistful longing with a doubtful outcome, you don't have biblical hope. If your hope has no basis, it has no value. For instance, if I say, I sure hope I win the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes, that expectation is ill-founded. I have a better chance of being struck by lightning or by being kicked to death by a mule, statistically, than winning the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes. It's, it's just not, it, especially since I never fill out an entry form anyway. It's just going to be hard to win. You see, hope must be based on something solid to make it valid. If the basis for our hope isn't reliable and trustworthy, then hope means nothing. 
It's, it's nothing more than a whimsical dream. Why do you suppose, we've talked about this in the past, why do you suppose anchors, an anchor was the symbol of the ancient church that we find in the catacombs and in the graves of early Christians. Anchors carved on the catacombs or, or on the ossuary bone boxes where they're buried. I, I, why do you think the writer of Hebrews said this in Hebrews 6.19? We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. A hope is really well described by an anchor. Now, what's the purpose of an anchor? It's to keep the ship from moving, right? In the midst of the storm or, or where it never needs to be, the anchor keeps it still, keeps it anchored. But the truth of the, truth of the matter is it, it, it's not the anchor. It's what the anchor is tethered to that, that makes all the difference. You can have the largest anchor made of the best materials. You can have the heaviest anchor. You can have the most technologically advanced anchor on your boat. And if there's nothing but sand for it to attach to, it's a worthless anchor. You see, an anchor for it to do its job has to be fastened to something solid. No wonder the scriptures remind us that God is the rock of ages. The hymn writer Edward Mote said it best, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Vine's Dictionary of New Testament Words defines hope as a favorable and confident expectation. Paul, in writing to Timothy, uses this phrase, Christ Jesus, our hope. Theologian William Barclay wrote, he said, the Christian hope is the hope which has seen everything and endured everything and still and has still not despaired because it believes in God. The Christian hope is not hope in the human spirit, in human goodness, in human endurance, in human achievement. The Christian hope is hope in the power of God. Of all the seemingly hopeless stories in Scripture, no moment for the disciples equaled that of the last breath of the Savior on the cross. What in the world were they going to do now? For over three years, they had been growing in anticipation that Jesus was the one that they had been waiting for, the expected one. All their hopes, however, were dashed when Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus gently lifted the lifeless body of Jesus from the cross and tenderly placed it in the tomb. Don't you know the disciples were overcome by fear in those moments? They buried their hopes in that tomb next to the lifeless body of Jesus. And hopelessly they wondered if they wouldn't be the next to die a death. This was not, by the way, the first time they had faced a hopeless fear without Jesus. There, there was another occasion, a fearful night, when Jesus had sent them on ahead. Jesus was not with them, and he sent them to cross the Sea of Galilee, and he said he would join him much later. So there they are in the middle of the sea, and suddenly a, a squall comes up that just scares them to death. 
They despaired of surviving, so bad was this storm. Seized by fear, they stared into the darkness. They tried to bail out of their fishing boat, but the more they bailed, the more water that seemed to come in. They strained to see the shoreline, thinking that if the boat had maybe been pushed close to the shore, even when it came apart, they might be able, they might be able to swim to shore and survive. But as they peered into the darkness with the flash of a lightning, they saw something coming to them on the water. What? What in the world was that? I mean, it, it almost looked like somebody walking on the water. Couldn't be. Then a second flash of lightning, and the person or the sphere, uh, the, the figure was even closer at that point in time. The image was unmistakably a human form. And so they concluded at that point in time, folks, that it was a ghost. What any other explanation they could come up with? And, and suddenly they are now terrified. We face two kinds of fear in life. We face the fear of the known and the unknown. That night on the Sea of Galilee, the disciples faced both. Now they knew well the dangers of a squall on the Sea of Galilee and how violent storms could be and how dangerous it was be to be caught in one of those storms. But when they saw what they could not explain, when they saw in the flash of the lightning this specter that was walking across the water, I, I think they were terrified beyond belief. I think the fear of the unknown is far more paralyzing than the fear of the known. My company is downsizing. They're cutting staff. I don't know what that's going to do to me. I don't know what tomorrow will bring. How long, Doc, did you say it would be before I'd get the results back from the test? Well, what do we do in the meantime? How, how are we going to treat this thing? What, what, what if it's not treatable? What, what if it's life-threatening? What, what am I going to do? I have no idea what tomorrow will, will bring. I just buried my spouse. I, I watched them crank the casket, her casket, down into the ground. I have no idea how I'll make it tomorrow. You, you see, there are certain fears, and the fear of the unknown is utterly paralyzing. And in the midst of the storm, in the midst of their fear, the words of Jesus pierce the darkness of the night. Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. And when Jesus stepped into the boat, the, the storm calmed. Everything was fine. Jesus changed everything. And he still does. He still does. When the storms of life overwhelm you and your mind goes wild contemplating the unknown, take courage, stick close to Jesus. Only he can calm your fears and give you everlasting hope. Hope, folks, is a gift from God. Hope is the second pillar of the great Christian trilogy, faith, hope, and love. Hope gives you the strength to keep moving forward toward the light when everything else in your world seems to be crumbling into the darkness. Hope ensures, it assures, and it reassures our faith throughout our entire spiritual journey. Hope is not static, it is stirring. Hope is not lifeless, it is living. Living hope through a living Savior. Someone put it this way, 
Hope is what makes the tea kettle whistle when it's up to its neck in hot water. I hope that describes your hope this morning. You see, God has communicated his hope throughout history. From Genesis to Revelation, he is telling us, I'm at work. I've got a plan. Life is not hopeless. Don't lose heart in the darkness. I'm coming to save you. Watch for me. Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. 17th century physicist and theologian Blaise Pascal wrote, There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person that cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God the Creator. I tell you this morning, he's the expected one and the only one that can fill you with everlasting hope. In this season of the year, in this Advent time that we celebrate, you just remember, the expected one has the hope to keep you going. Do you know him as your Savior? If you don't, while we stand and while we sing this song, you make that choice, will you please? Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.